Welcome back to Portfolio Rescue. If you have a question, email us, askthecompoundshow at gmail.com. Today's Portfolio Rescue is brought to you by Innovator ETFs. Duncan, one area where investors haven't really had to think about protecting themselves to the downside is bonds. Now that interest rates have risen quite a bit, people are finally saying, oh, wait, bonds can actually fall in price a little bit. This is especially true for long-duration bonds. One of the reasons that certain investors like to hold long-duration bonds because they tend to give you more bang for your buck during a recession, right? If interest rates fall and we go into deflation, all else equal, higher-duration bonds will have greater sensitivity to change rates, right? When rates rise, prices fall more than shorter-term bonds, but when rates fall, those prices tend to rise more. So let's look at the TLT as the 20-year Treasury ETF. In 2019, it was up 14%. 2020, it was up 18%. 2022, it's down 22%. So Innovator has this... Uh, TLT ETF that has a buffer to the downside. So it protects you with 9% buffer, meaning the first down 9%, if you start from zero, you're protected. But it also has a cap of 27%. So your defined outcomes are you can earn as much as 27% and your first 9% is capped for losses. Now, the thinking here would be, okay, we could see inflation remain stubbornly high and that could see rates rise even further on the high end, right? And that would crush them some more. So you want to protect on the downside. Alternatively, the Fed could get its way, raise rates enough where the economy slows, and we actually do get some disinflation or maybe even deflation, and rates fall again. And then you don't want to miss out on those gains. So the way you use these defined outcome ETFs is that you have a cap on the upside, but you have some buffer to the downside. Uh, pretty interesting. So if, if the, you know, no matter what happens, you're kind of you're, you're kind of okay, and that's why they have these defined outcomes. So you have the ranges to know. To learn more about this and other ETFs from defined outcomes, uh, go to innovatoretfs.com. It's like you can uh, see the future. Well, you can at least give yourself some markers so you know, I'm, over here I'm okay and over here I'm okay and I know what I'm going to get, depending yeah. on what the market does. Yeah. All right, so I was looking at the drawdowns today. John, throw up this chart. This is the, the Dow and the S&P. Looking this morning. Dow is down from the highs 17%. The S&P is down 21%. Duncan, wouldn't you say vibes alone, it, should, it feels like twice as bad as this? I know this is not great. We're in a bear market. The NASDAQ is down more. A bunch of people are going to be in the in the comments saying, well, look at the ind- individual stocks I own. They're down 50, 60, 70%. Well, yeah. yeah, that's what I was about to say. I'd, I'd love to have those returns right now. You know, but. The, the stock market itself, though, it's not necessarily in a crash, even though sentiment feels like we're in a crash. So I don't know if that's good news or bad news, because good news, maybe things haven't gotten as bad as people think. Obviously, you could adjust these for inflation and say they're a little worse. Bad news is we have more room to fall. Uh, so I guess it depends if you're a glass is half full, glass is half empty kind of guy. When have you ever but, seen sentiment this this bad before? Well, I mean, 2008 for sure. That was, okay. uh, I, I mean, that was at the end. People just kind of gave up. It lasted for so. That was, you know, it. The stock market peaked in October 2007. We didn't bottom till March 2009. If you think about it, all that stuff that happened with Lehman Brothers and AIG and all the bank blowups, that was in September and October of 2008. And the market didn't bottom until March 2009. So that lasted so long that it, people at the end had kind of just thrown up their hands and, and given up. And so that for sure was just as bad. But back then you didn't have, you know, social media throwing it in your face every day. Right. That's part of the problem. If, if you're on that as much as people like we are, you probably assume the sentiment is, is worse than real life. You know, when you go out into the real world and a restaurant's full of people spending money and the subway's full and all this stuff, you know, it, it it doesn't feel as bad there as it does when you're paying attention to this stuff as much as we do. So for right. us, maybe that sentiment is amplified, actually. Yeah, no, that makes sense. Let's do a question. Okay, so up first we have 
I'm a 31-year-old financial planner married with two young kids. My wife and I just sold our house to move school districts and will rent for the next year. We will clear $70,000 from our house. Our goal is to buy our forever home within the next year. Uh, with where Bitcoin is sitting, uh, I can't wait to see the comments on this one. Uh, with where Bitcoin is sitting, I'm very tempted to put ten dollars to $50,000 of our $70,000 cash into Bitcoin and wait a year to see what happens. My wife would definitely not like this. And I know as a financial planner that the responsible answer is hell no, or maybe just 5% of our cash. But I can't help but think that if Bitcoin returns to its high of $67,000, I could double or triple our cash for purchasing a forever home. I have a guaranteed salary of $90,000 and my wife makes $40,000 a year. We have no debt and I save 10% of my income for retirement. So I, I don't like the idea of timing the housing market, but it sounds like this these people time the housing market pretty well. They sold their house. They're going to wait a year. I think waiting a year in the housing market right now is, could be okay if rates stay high for a while, that it could slow down. Obviously, initial blush, if we're being honest here, Ben's initial reaction is, this is a ridiculous idea. <laughs> do not do it. But let, let's just look at the cost-benefit just to see. Okay, you said you have $70,000 in cash. Let's do, That's your entire down payment. You're going to do a 20% down payment. That would be 20% of... For a $70,000 down payment is like a $350,000 house, like $280,000 mortgage. I don't know if you're going to put more cash down and maybe have it a smaller percentage, but let's just go with this for you know illustrative purposes here. A $350,000 house with a $70,000 down payment is a mortgage of $280,000 using a 5% fixed rate mortgage. Who knows where mortgage rates will be in a year? We're talking in a 30-rate fixed rate mortgage, a monthly payment of like $1,500 a month, right? Still with me, Duncan? Yeah. Now, let's say you went up to your max limit. You put 50K into Bitcoin. You kept 20,000 out and you put 50K in there and it snaps back. Maybe it doesn't even reach those all-time highs because that, that, that's asking a lot probably. Let's say it just doubles, right? We go from 20 to 40. Now, you know, you take your 50, you've doubled it. You have your extra 20. You have $120,000 for put down. That would drop your monthly payment to like $1,230 a month if you used all of that for your down payment, right? So that you're saving like $270 a month, right? That's, that's real money for people. But what if you're wrong? What if Bitcoin goes back to $5,000 like it did in March 2020? What if it keeps crashing? We have Coinbase blows up or some other thing and Sam Bankman-Fried can't save everyone. It's not out of the realm of possibilities, right? Now that that 50 gets crushed and now you have $12,500, right? And you can only make a down payment of less than 10%, right? Because you lost a good chunk of it. In that case, we're talking about a monthly payment of $1,700 a month or $200 more. So obviously, these are the, the extreme examples. You do really well, you do really poorly. There could be uh, a middle ground there. But I wanted to look at the extremes because I, I think especially to the downside, that's what you want to think about in these cases. Here's the thing. Do, do you want to bet your forever home on crypto? Like, can you imagine how angry your wife would be if you lost a bunch of this money yeah. and you tried to pull this off and it doesn't work? Uh, I mean, newsflash, you can't live on the blockchain, right? Yeah. And if the bank, if let's say rates continue to go higher in the mortgage market and your monthly payment is even higher now, and that down payment would help you a lot. Listen, what would I do? Take $20,000 of this, put it into Series I savings bonds. You're earning 9% annualized right now. Put the rest of it in short-term bonds or online savings account. You can earn 1% to 3% in there. It's not life-changing money, but it's much better than it was in the recent past. If you want to get cute with this, maybe take five dollars to $10,000 and speculate. Like, let's say you take $10,000 of the 70. You still have 60000 for a down payment. That's not going to change, you, change your life all that much. Let's say Bitcoin does go back to all-time highs and you turn 10 into 30, right? You've, that, that, that can mean something. And it's you still gonna... get to look like a genius to your friends. You know, yeah. It's and you don't like look like as much return. of an idiot if it doesn't yeah. work, right? I, I, 
I understand. So here's here's how you think about like a down payment. Every at five percent interest over thirty years, every five thousand dollars equates to like thirty dollars a month for your mortgage. Right. So thinking about like the upside and the downside there, it's not going to help you a ton if if you if it works out to be right. Right. I know it seems like a lot of money, but I don't know. I understand the human desire to speculate. I just think speculation should always be sized appropriately, especially when dealing with a goal that's important. Like, I would rather have no speculation at all when dealing with something like a house down payment. If it's something else, if you, if you got $5,000 saved and you want to buy a boat, have at it. Put it in Bitcoin if you want. I just don't know if I'd ever be comfortable taking a chance with something that important, especially when I just don't, especially when your wife is already against it. I just, I don't see the upside and downside. We're not talking about an asymmetric upside bet here this is yeah. the symmetry is to the downside yeah and well and it's a slippery slope right because there's you know they could start getting into altcoins and be like oh well i mean maybe i could i could have you know x return you know more than bitcoin even or or maybe i could have a basket of altcoins and and do you know so it's just kind of like i guess where this this could end up in a bad place i guess and, if and went too far. yeah and if and if you're right you think okay well i'm just gonna pull all the equity out of my home and put it put it into something else and that's gonna work next time and unfortunately, every once in a while, one of these speculations is not going to work. And you don't want it to be on a house when maybe the bank says you need this down payment to qualify for this mortgage. And now you don't. I, I, I wouldn't play around here. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Fun question. Let's do another one. Yeah. Yeah. This, this next one is kind of a long one, but I wanted to include a lot of it because it's interesting to hear the thought process some people go through on this stuff. So let's do it. Yeah. Yeah. So this is a two pager um, for those of you watching. Is there ever a time where you would say, damn the company match and stop investing in your 401k? Here is my situation. I live in high-cost Chicago suburbs. Wife and I are both 44. We have two grade school-aged boys, good salaries, and low-rate mortgage debt. We have $400,000 in Roths and $1.2 million in 401k, but only $33,000 in taxable accounts. We backdoor Roth every year. My wife is a partner in her firm and required to max out her 401k and pension. That kind of confused me. I've never heard of that required to max out, but we can talk about that later. Um, she is a pension is a big part of it, but yeah. Okay. She is a couple of years from investing in a pension that will pay her six figures annually in retirement. My company match is 1.5% of my salary, and I only contribute enough to get the 6% match. Uh, neither of us wants to work until we are 65. 55 would be ideal. We currently do not contribute to our taxable accounts due to a massive home renovation we are about to undertake, but will allow us to comfortably stay in place for the next 15 years or so until we move away from Chicago to the mountains somewhere. Once the remodel is paid for, we will be directing excess funds towards taxable accounts. We have anywhere from 11 to 15 years to bulk up our taxable accounts to put us in position to bridge the early retirement gap to retirement fund pension age. The conclusion I keep coming to is it's not worth giving up $2,000 in free money just to put money into our taxable accounts. Also, based on our time frame of 11 to 15 years, I know rate of contribution is more important uh, than re the returns. So I feel like I'm just spinning myself into the ground, weighing the pros and cons. That was a lot. All right. So, so yeah, Ben's rule number one of retirement savings is you always get the match. If you don't get it, you're turning down free money. But I understand the thought process here. Like You already have a big allocation to tax deferred retirement accounts. Uh, you do have the pension coming, which is nice, and a lot of people don't. This, I, I guess this certainly falls in our not to brag category, right? I mean, <laughs> yeah. this, this, we're doing Andy's doing pretty well, and his wife are doing pretty well here. So kudos to you for that. Uh, listen, I understand the idea makes sense to build up your taxable account, 
since you're going to re- retire early and don't want to pay penalties on early withdrawals. And the idea of diversifying your tax base makes sense too. So you can have a little, you know, give and take when you do take those those you know withdrawals from your retirement accounts. Uh, I, I guess your your one percent, one and a half percent that you're receiving on your match is not life changing money, but it's free money nonetheless. And I'm I can see why people wouldn't want to turn it down. So let's work look work through some options before we go canceling that four hundred one k match. Uh, I, I've done some remodeling in the past. It, it always takes a lot longer than you think and costs. I don't know twenty to forty percent more than you assume it will. Uh, but let, you said you know these payments will be done in a couple of years, and you plan on throwing them in your taxable account. You can do some simple back of the envelope calculations. I think someone's been reading Ben's "Everything You Need to Know About Saving for Retirement" book because they said they know that their contributions matter more than their returns over 11, 15 years, right? So they've been paying attention. I think you can do some pretty simple back of the envelope calculations to see where those savings will get you in you know 11 to 15 years. Uh, you could also see how much you can just set aside in that taxable account for a few years before canceling. You know, what, give it a couple of years and see how much you're how much progress you're making. And if it's not where you think you'd like to be at for a few years, you can always rethink that 401k match. Uh, but how about that money in the Roth, right? One of the great features of having a Roth is that you can pull out your contributions penalty and tax-free, right? You can't take the investment earnings out penalty and tax-free, but you can take the contributions. So if you're doing that backdoor Roth every year, you can take out the contributions tax-free. So if you want to bridge that gap between 55 and 65 and you don't have enough in your taxable account, maybe the Roth contributions can, can make up some of it. I mean, the good news is it sounds like you and your wife are great planners, and this is a relatively small decision in the grand scheme of things. Like getting to this level and you're you're niching it down to this much, you're doing pretty good. And who knows what will happen? Maybe you'll reach 55 and realize one or both of you don't want to retire. You want to work a little longer, right? And then it won't matter as much, and you can prolong it. Maybe you'll have saved more than expected. Maybe you'll save less than expected. You just have to work. Uh, the good news with these kind of decisions is not set in stone. You can always change your mind later, but. I think you you give it a couple of years, see how long this renovation takes, and once you get there, you can kind of have an idea of the money. But yeah, does it always always make sense one hundred percent of the time to take the match? Maybe it's ninety nine percent of the time. I could I could I could allow for one percent where it doesn't make sense. But uh, I'd say I'd say give it some time and see how much money you can start building up the taxable account first before you shut that off because it is again it's it's turned down free money. Yeah, yeah, free money. There aren't many opportunities for that, so <laughs> sounds good. Yeah. Well, yeah, you're, you're, you're in a pretty good place. All right, let's do another one. Okay, so up next, I'm in retirement and using the 4% rule to fund my lifestyle. My question is, is it better to sell 4% of my portfolio at the beginning of the year or sell throughout the year as I need the money? Which strategy leads to more wealth in the long run? Assume you are invested 100% in U.S. equity index funds. All right, we've gotten a lot of questions like this lately from people who want to know, how do I spend money in retirement? I'm nervous. We're in a bear market. What does this mean? This is basically an, an opposite. This is a reverse dollar cost averaging situation. So my person I lean on, my expert for dollar cost averaging, the great Nick Majuli. He writes that of dollars and data. He works with us at Red Hills Wealth just Management. Just keep buying. New book, just keep buying. So Nick, this is the opposite. And when I this question came in, I immediately sent it to you. I said, have you ever done anything like this? And I think your 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 tagline to me was buy quickly but sell slowly, right? Is that the idea? Yes, exactly. So I actually <clears throat> wrote about this in the book. And I think the the main thing to think about when you're thinking about buying and selling, I mean, there's one core idea here, which is the market tends to go up over time. And so given that, just imagine a series that just keeps slowly increasing over time. You'd want to buy sooner so you get in on that appreciation. And then given that it's going up over time, you'd also want to sell more slowly, right? You want to buy more quickly and sell more slowly because of this appreciation, right? And I've actually run the numbers on this. I did a whole blog post on this just on sell slowly. I kind of dug into it a little bit more. 
um, kind of related to blackjack and stuff, looked at like the edge that you have by following a strategy where you sell, let's say, each quarter over the course of a year versus selling like right at the beginning of the year. And and the honestly, the percentage is small. It's not like you're making a huge like if you do this over one year, you're going to probably outperform by like 20 bips, like on average. So it's like 20 basis points, 0.2 percent. It's not a lot. But if you do this over a long period of time, let's say your entire retirement, the quarterly withdrawals is going to outperform by um, a bit more, right? So, and you you annualize that that twenty bips, it adds up to a, a bit more money. So, that's kind of the main takeaway there. I think that's the thing that that I would think about when doing that, right? You know, when when and, you say uh, you ran the data, I'd believe anything you say next. <laughs> Nikki numbers <laughs> Just ran the numbers it, on this. It yeah. it makes sense though, you, and you show John throw up the chart here that shows the how often quarterly withdrawals beat beginning of the year withdrawals. You can see it, it goes up over time, much like. The stock market. So it it makes sense that if you slowly but surely withdraw instead of taking a big chunk out at the beginning of the year. Now, some people would say psychologically, I want that number at the beginning of the year, no matter what happens to the market, because then I know that is locked in. But the way I look at this is you're kind of diversifying your withdrawals, right? In in your because a lot of people ask us, like the lump sum and dollar cost averaging question going in. There, there aren't as many easy strategies to follow when getting out. And obviously, there, there's like the, the other part of this is, and I'm sure you've written about this too, Nick, is like the sequence of return risk, right? If you start taking your money out and there's a huge bear market that hits, that can really alter your portfolio going forward. And I think actually having some diversification beyond asset classes and strategies and diversification in your withdrawal strategy actually can probably help a little bit too, because even when markets are falling, they're very volatile, right? And you could see these snapback rallies, even if you happen to retire in a bear market where taking it out over time is probably going to help you because obviously if you take it out right before bear market, you'll feel better, but eventually you're going to, you're going to have to hit and, and take some out then. So, and you looked at this for a 100% stock portfolio. In a balanced portfolio, the good thing is you may be allowed to rebalance your portfolio as you make withdrawals with, as well by taking from places that aren't getting hammered as much as the stock market. Yeah, exactly. Right. And so I think the the effects are even the less volatile your portfolio, the smaller these impacts are. So like we're already talking about a small difference now. So I wouldn't sweat the small stuff on this. It's really not that big of a difference whether you do beginning of your quarterly, but technically quarterly will outperform, especially over like a you know multi-decade retirement time frame. Yeah. And there's other people who will say, I'm gonna keep two to three years as a cash cushion in case the stock market falls, and I'm gonna use that kind of break in case of emergency kind of thing. Maybe this is the kind of emergency you'd want to use that for. But it, yeah, your your whole thought process there makes sense. Buy quickly, put the money to work because stocks usually go up. It doesn't feel like it this year, but most of the time stocks go up. And I do think your, your, your book here, just keep buying. I, I'm actually glad it came out during a bear market because it, that, that's when you need to hear this message more than during a, it's easy to keep buying during a bull market, right? It's, it's yeah. when it's a bear market and you want to k- stick to that plan, that makes more sense, right? Yes, of course. Okay, let's do another one, Duncan. Okay. Up next, we have, uh, when making a retirement portfolio, what would you use for real return of bond and equity allocations? Would using zero for bond and 2% for equity be conservative, realistic enough? No, real return, not nominal. For new wills and young people and stuff, can you explain this a little bit? Because I'm having trouble. This is asking for return expectations net of inflation, right? On, on a real basis, standard of living, what can you expect your retirement portfolio to do over the long term? So, John, throw up the first table here. I took this from Asoft to Motorin at NYU, and it's stocks, bonds, and cash going back to 1928. I looked at nominal returns. Those are the actual compounded returns. Then over that same time frame, inflation was roughly 3% per year. So you can see that the, the real returns go down by that inflation rate. You can see stocks have a real return of 7% or so. 
bonds are close to two and cash is, is pretty close to zero. Uh, so based on market history, 2% real and 0% real are conservative. But when taking, I, I think when setting expectations for the future, you have to take the present into account, right? So one of my favorite ones, Nick, I'm sure you've seen this, is the John Bogle expected returns formula. So he takes the dividend yield plus earnings growth plus or minus the change in P-E ratio. Current dividend yield for the U.S. stock market is like 1.7%. Dividends have grown 2% over the rate of inflation over the last 100 years. Historical earnings growth is like 3% real. So let's call it 5% as your baseline, right? And then mm-hmm. no one can predict the change in P-E ratio because that's how people feel. No one knows what people are going to be willing to buy, pay for stocks in the years ahead, right? Yeah. Um, but do you think that 0% for bonds as a real is, is realistic? Do you think that's too low or do you think that's about right? I mean, it's tough to say, like, right now, maybe it is. But, like, over the long term, I expect there to be some real return there. I expect it to be, like, you know, I think most of history was, like, you know, 1% to 2%. You were looking at 2 to 4% nominal, probably 1% to 2% real. And so I'm 0 to 1 right now is probably what we'll expect going forward. But I don't know. I mean, it's just it's really time period specific, right? So I right. want to hope that there's going to be some real return there, but there's no guarantee. Um, and then on equities, yeah, I think I, I usually plan for 4 to 5% real, and there's, like, a lot of data that shows that across countries even, across a lot of other countries, you'll see, like, 4%, 4 to 5% real is probably, like, a fair estimate. Yeah, so, John, throw this other table. A lot of people say, well, all the returns on financial markets has come because of disinflation and interest rates falling since 1980. So I looked at 1928 to 1980. What did stocks, bonds, and cash do? You can see... It was almost it was a little over five and a half percent real for stocks and bonds and cash were actually about the same and they were zero percent real. Now it's important to remember that this is during a period that includes the Great Depression and World War II and the war in Vietnam and all sorts of other crashes and recessions in bear markets. So I wanted to look at a period where things were pretty nasty and you had the worst literally the worst crash in history of the United States stock market, and you still got almost six percent real in stocks. So I know people are very bearish right now and don't feel very good, but Maybe that that time period is a little more representative of considering the starting valuations and interest rates and all that stuff. Uh, I actually do think simply keeping up with the inflation rate for bonds is not a bad deal because I, I think you can't expect to earn the kind of returns we've earned in bonds for the last forty years or whatever. That that that's probably not happening again. But yeah, I, I think to your point, five percent in stocks and zero to one for bonds on a real basis, just keeping up with inflation is, is that makes sense to me, right? I'd sign off on that. Sounds good to me. I mean, for most people, I mean, I think being a little conservative in your planning is probably not the worst thing in the world because most people are probably too aggressive, right? You, you've seen those surveys, right, Nick, where people think they're going to earn mm-hmm. 12% a year or whatever it is. And mm-hmm. uh, yeah, and, and maybe some people will say, well, if I'm earning 0% real, I don't want to own any stocks and I'll just have a little, or I don't, don't own any bonds, I'll just have a little cash. But uh, yeah, this is probably a good. Uh, a good uh, experience for people to go through to think through this stuff because I'm sure a lot of people don't really even think through this stuff. They just kind of hope their returns will be great and not worry about the downside. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, it seems like this this kind of goes back to that Bitcoin question too, right, where a lot of it is just about like, are you going to kick yourself more for being too aggressive or for not being aggressive enough? And I guess that depends on risk tolerance and personality, right? Yeah. Well, real returns for Bitcoin, I'm I'm expecting like 98% a year, give or take, (laughs) something like that. Maybe not. Not investment advice. (laughs) Not quite. (laughs) All right, let's do another one. Okay. Uh, I put $500 a month into a taxable account at Fidelity. In this account, my target allocation is 50% SPY, 40% triple Q, and 10% TLT. Is there any actual difference if I invest my $500 according to those percentages each month? 
250 SPY, 200 QQQ, and 50 TLT versus breaking down the $500 into appropriate levels in order to maintain the account's 50-40-10 allocation. The scenario goes as follows. All three equities have gone down over the past few months, but QQQ has outpaced the declines. Should I be putting more than the 40% of my monthly investment into Triple Q given its recent performance in an attempt to hit the 40% allocation, or should I just rebalance the entire portfolio twice a year on January 1st and July 1st? Good question here. So the idea is, should you use your contributions to rebalance as you go, or should you just make it easy, automate it, and rebalance along the way? Nick, any have you ever done any work on this, or do you have any, any thoughts? Yes, I have. So I did talk about this. I've also talked about this in the book as well. But um, basically, because it's a taxable account, right? If this was a non-taxable account, you can rebalance as often as you want. There's no tax consequences. But because it's a taxable account, I do not recommend selling things and then buying something else, doing an actual rebalance because it's a taxable event. All right. So the idea here, because it's taxable, it matters more, right? And so I think it, it, it's probably... So when you're rebalancing, you're trimming some of your losers. You're tr- trimming some of your winners to buy some of your losers, Right. And so what happens is when you rebalance, you'll be locking in some gains on occasion. And the idea here is, especially since it's a taxable account, it probably makes sense to just rebalance with those contributions. And I, I do this too for even if it's a tax-deferred account, it's just a little easier. I'll, I'll up some of the ones that are lagging a little bit just because it makes sense to bring them up and it's easier that way than hitting it, right? Um, the one downside is it requires a little more work, so it's not as easy to automate your investments along the way. But I think if you're willing to do this, especially in a taxable account and you hate paying taxes, and as we talk with every time we talk with Bill Duncan, right, people hate paying taxes more than they enjoy having seeing gains in their portfolio. Yeah, no, it's it's true. And yeah, any I think people feel like they're like winning winning the game when they save on taxes, right? You know, it's kind of like they were really smart. That's what Bill's talked about before. It's like you did something really smart. You like tell your friends and they're like, Oh, you, I didn't Everyone understands that, like, yeah, if you pick the right stocks, they go up. But I don't think people ever really think about the fact that just being smart about tax strategy can actually end up, you know, saving you a lot of money. So the main takeaway here is like just thinking about this, like, as you're, you should be buying the underweight asset. So in this case, QQQ, and instead of trying to cause a taxable event by selling some of the overweight and stuff and doing that. So I call that an accumulation rebalance. So you're just buying over time. You're buying into the underweight thing. I think that's much better. And the other thing that just on rebalancing in general, you don't have to rebalance as much as you think. So like everyone's like, oh, do I need twice a year, once a year? It doesn't really matter. A lot of this stuff, it's it's luck, really. It's really, there's so much noise. There's no one rebalancing period that dominates. I've even written on this before, where if you rebalance in January versus April or July, it just it's complete noise, right? It's very difficult to know when's the best time to rebalance. So just do something that works for you. That's what I recommend. Um, and yeah, the, the the less you can sell assets and the more you can just buy underweight assets, I think that's a better policy going forward because it's it's just not going to create taxable events, right? And that's the key. So that's why, you know, just keep buying, not selling, right? Does anyone think that we should short Apple based on the fact that AirPods seem to die all the time when you're on one of these things? I hate what do you think? Is, that, is Apple a short because of this? I don't know. It's a great question. <laughs> what, what do they last? Uh, uh, 60 minutes, 90 minutes tops, something like that? That's what it seems like. I have my AirPods hooked up to my watch, my phone, my Mac. It just It's constantly pinging to one of those, you know, it would be nice to just, yeah, make it easy. Anyway, thanks for joining, Nick. And remember, if you haven't read Nick's thanks, book, Nick. one more plug, just keep buying. Thank you. I love it because it's a mix of personal finance and investing, and I think you need both of those if you're going to succeed. 
Remember, if you're listening to us in podcast form, leave a review for us. Just tell us how much you like Duncan and his hats. Uh, if you're watching on YouTube, hit that subscriber button. Leave us a comment. Leave us a question in the comments as well. Thanks, everyone, who followed along live. We always appreciate it. If you want some compound merch, idontshop.com. we still got eh, five or six weeks of summer left. There's still some Portfolio Rescue t-shirts in there. Uh, again, keep those questions coming. Askthecompoundshow at gmail.com. Uh, the Compound and Friends tomorrow. Remember, Animal Spirits should have a new video up today. And we will see you next time. See you, everyone. podcast is for informational purposes only. It is brought to you by Ritholtz Wealth Management. Clients of Ritholtz Wealth Management may maintain positions in the securities mentioned on this podcast. If you're new to investing, check out liftoffinvest.com to get started with us today.